Well, good morning, everyone. Grace and peace. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see y'all today. Grace and peace. Good to see y'all. Welcome to our Bible study. We're going to be continuing in our study of the life of David. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 5. I want to back up just for a second and get y'all to ponder what we talked about this past Sunday. If you were able to be with us um, at the end of Genesis chapter 4, uh, it kind of comes to this uh, this head or climax at the end of that chapter. And uh, the uh, writer of Genesis, Moses, says, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. We kind of unpacked what that meant on uh, Sunday. What? Here, here's the quiz. What, how does the writer of First and Second Samuel choose to say a very similar thing? Y'all remember? <coughs> Who said it? Inquire. Yes, that's right. Inquire of the Lord, right? That, and we've been noticing that as we've been going through David's life, that when David inquires of the Lord, good things happen, right? I would make the contention that when we call on the name of the Lord, that there opens up this grand possibility of good things happening, both in our lives and in uh, the world. And so um, I thought it would be good then to go back uh, to one of the Psalms, one of David's Psalms, Psalm 86, how David employs this term, calling on the name of the Lord. And then as we uh, kind of start seeing some of David's successes uh, kind of start playing out. What is at the root of that? Let's pray together. Psalm 86. A prayer of David. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you, for you are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, today we turn a page in David's life. For the first time in his life, he is left home alone. What did you do the first time your parents left you home alone? Maybe for the weekend. All right, true confessions. Let's, let's hear it. <clears throat> Who'd you invite over? What'd you do? Did you get caught? It's probably less true of some generations than the others, but David's life has been living under the fear and threat of Saul. And then there was a little bit of Saul's 
relatives, his, his other sons, but by the time we get to chapter 5, that's all removed. And David now is facing a new day. David can do what David wants to do. We've skipped over chapter 4, and let me just say about that quickly. There was one surviving there's actually two sons uh, of Saul still left, but only one of them is a viable option. And remember, his name was Ishbosheth, which should make you grin a little bit. Um, it's, his real name is Ishbal, uh, but the writer of Samuel doesn't want to say the name Baal um, because it's, it's, it's another god, it's, it's an evil god. So he changed his name to Manure. Bosheth is Manure. It's actually a much stronger word than that, but I won't say it. So, you know, crap man or something like that is how you would translate his name. So anyway, he is not uh, the great king that his father was. So when Abner, the general that commanded his armies, is killed, the people think, eh, the gig is up. So they assassinate their own king, and they take his head, and they take it to David. And they say to David, hey, we know this guy was your enemy. We've done you a little favor here. We brought you a present. Here's his head. Now, you guys know David. What's David going to do? Have him killed. Have him killed. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe you killed my enemy. Don't you know I love my enemy? Oh, put the head right there. Anyway, uh, it's, it's horrible. I, I can't believe it. I'm not that kind of man. Hey, guys, come here. Kill these two. And so that's what happens. So again, we're like, mm, kind of a little sketchy there, David. But David said, my enemies are all dead. I had nothing to do with it. See, my hands are clean. So we pick up in chapter 5. Now all this is behind him. Now it seems like from the text that the Civil War was quick. It was about seven years or so. So it, it's, not, it's not as quick as the narrative makes it described, but finally all of that's over. So chapter 5, verse 1. <clears throat> then all of the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, We are all members of your family for a long time. Even while Saul was king, you were the one who really led Israel. And the Lord has told you, you will be the shepherd of my people Israel. You will be their leader. <coughs> so there at Hebron, David made a covenant. That's important. Uh, just like God makes covenant with Israel, they've made this, this solemn promise, solemn covenant. With the leaders of Israel, it's the elders of Israel, not all the people, but the, the tribal elders, the tribals of elders before the Lord. They anointed him to be king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years in all. He had reigned over Judah and Hebron for seven years and six months. And so that was basically the, the length of the civil war when he was just reigning in Judah and trying to get the north to follow him. And from Jerusalem he reigned over all of Israel and Judah for 33 years. So since he was, uh, Steve was looking at it yesterday, about 15, since he was a teenager uh, to uh, 30 now, he has been under the threat of Saul, but that's all over. 
David still will not be very popular with the rank and file, but the leaders have decided that we've got to throw in our lot in with David. There's no option now with Saul's line. It's over. There's one son left, but he's a cripple. And uh, Jewish law does not allow uh, cripples, uh, anybody with a deformity, to enter the temple or to rule. Uh, it's, it's a whole other Bible study why that is. But uh, So Mephibosheth, which they also did the same thing, his name was Merib Baal, and so they changed it to uh, Merib Bosheth. So he, he's not an option. David? Yes, yes. Which is his second time um, to be to be anointed is to be Messiah. If you can turn Messiah into actually the third time. It's third time. So by Samuel, oh Samuel, yeah, Samuel, and then by the leaders of Judah, and now by the leaders of Israel. So you take the olive oil and you you sprinkle it. Well, not sprinkle it. You pour it over their head, and they. They're anointed, they're chosen uh, to be. So three times a winner here. Yep. So what do you do? Oh boy, you're the king of the whole country. What kind of condition is the country in? Do you remember? It's a mess. It's a hot mess. They've lost the best of their land to the Philistines, which is this small group of people, but they've come from Greece, sort of proto-Greeks. They've settled. They're more technologically advanced in terms of iron weapons, but David has closed that gap quite a bit. He at least has his mercenary core that can challenge challenge them one-on-one. The, the country is still very much north and south. So David decides in chapter or verse 6 that he's going to have a new capital. Now, it's a war and torn country. Uh, it's, and country's probably too strong a word. It, it, it's really a tribal confederation. Each tribal area will join together to do certain things, but for the most part, they're keeping their own territories. He wants to try to create a capital that doesn't belong to any tribe, sort of like we did with Washington, D.C. You know, technically, it's not part of any state. So he doesn't want to pick a fight with the Philistines, so he's not going to take a city from them. There were still groups of Canaanites left. I have to back up a little bit, and I apologize for throwing more groups at you, more people, but this is one group you really got to know. Canaanites, also called Phoenicians if they live along the coast. These were the inhabitants of the promised land when Israel arrived. These are a group of people that God said, please eradicate them. If any of them change sides or convert, save them. Uh, but they, these, are, these are bad, bad dudes. Or It's a civilization. So real quick, you guys know this. They are earth worshipers. Uh, they're the original environmentalists. Uh, they worship a mother earth and father rain. They have a ritual prostitution. So women had to go and serve uh, 
on benches in front of the temple. And if you came by, the, you would have sex with these women. It's sort of Bronze Age pornography because the gods would see you having sex and then, oh, they'd have sex and this is what brings rain. Uh, the rain is the only way that they had crops in Israel. This shows up all over the place. Uh, Judah, who is the father of the tribe of Judah, sleeps with a prostitute. She was one of these. Moses loses soldiers that are marching off, and they find these prostitutes. And like, oh, yeah, this is a great place. I want to live there. Uh, Rahab in Scripture is another one of these. I mean, they're all over the place because the Canaanites were all over. God says, get rid of them. So that's like the entry level into this Canaanite religion. The other side of it is the sacrifice of children. So we've talked about that. We don't want to get into it today, but it's, it's horrendous. And Israel will get into it. The god of this Canaanite religion is called Baal, B-A-A-L. And in the New Testament, Jesus relates him to Satan. That's why Jesus calls Satan Beelzebub, which is the Greek version of Baal-zavul, which is Lord of the sky, Lord of the air. Actually, the Hebrews do the same thing. Instead of calling him Lord of the air, they call him Lord of the flies. It's an insult, right? Because it's not the great rain god who throws thunderbolts. He's the god of the little flies, because zavul can mean air or flies. So that's actually where we get our Lord of the flies uh, reference in literature. So... They have a city that has not been taken. It's called Salem, or what we'll know as Jerusalem. It's in a mountainous area. It's not particularly valuable real estate. And I think we we have a photo of it about the time... um, Sorry. Yeah, that worked. So you look at it, and... I really like what the artists did because the ancient world, everything is a beautiful mud color. I mean, we forget how much color changes our world, right? And everybody's white clothes look just like that. So, like I say, it's not great real estate. You've got a valley running here. It's a little hard to see. And then you've got a valley running there. So it's the Kidron in the Hinnom Valley. So at least in terms of... Security, you have these two valleys that are protecting you here. Jerusalem always gets invaded uh, from that side because it's the flat area and you can take it. But it's, it's a walled city. It's a relatively old city. Really the only mention we have in it of Jerusalem before the time of David is this really mysterious circumstance that we'll talk about on Sunday. So way back when Abraham first arrived in the Promised Land, the Canaanites were here. There was a king from here, a king of Salem, and he was, as Canaanites tend to do, he was both the king and the high priest. So they combined this office. And his name was Melechizedek. So my king is righteous. And he is the guy we call Melchizedek, or what do we say, Melchizedek? Yep. Uh, He was the one that came out and said to Abraham, hey, I worship the same God you do. And Abraham said, really? I didn't know anybody else did. So they kind of have this neat little moment, and then that's the end. And everybody sort of scratched their heads because they think, Canaanites are terrible. How can you worship the same God? But... 
this this image will will stay with us for for quite a while. So where where do you grow your crops in Jerusalem? Yeah, not in Jerusalem. <laughs> That's the answer. It's kind of a rocky, mountainous area. They do have a source of water. It's limited. These Judean mountains are like, oh yeah, that's good. These Judean mountains are sort of like Austin, if you've ever been out in Austin. What does Austin produce for Texas, other than lunatics? (laughs) Rocks, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had to give you a gold star for that. Uh, but limestone, you know, we all think it's cool. It's uh, and if you ever, my in-laws are from there, from Round Rock, so we take Jason. And we have to find things to do. So I've been all through the caves in Austin. You ever been the caves in Austin? So it's, there's something about limestone and water. They just make these natural caves, and so just like Austin. The Judean mountains, especially Jerusalem, are they're full of caves. That whole mountain. I mean, yeah, you just you get into it and they're just cave after cave after cave. But the cool thing it does for Israel, well for Judah, is the rain when it comes will hit these mountains that are primarily limestone. And what does limestone do to water? It absorbs it. And so it'll absorb in the mountain. It, People say it purifies it, but I think it just makes it taste bad. Um, it runs to the mountain until it hits a clay layer, and then the water can't go any deeper. So when it hits a clay layer, it tends to run out of the mountain. And that's why you have these springs all over. So the main source of water in Jerusalem is this Gihon Spring. Now, it'll, it'll have different channels, and you sort of see this in the New Testament. They're always talking about this pool and that pool, but it's coming from one source in the Kidron Valley. So there's no rivers, there's no major water source. This is not a great place, at least initially. Uh, but if you think about the real estate today, there's probably no more fought over city in the whole world than Jerusalem. But the only frustration is that the water, like I said, it goes down through the mountains, and this is level, so you can sort of see the mountain go up. So it's at the bottom of the Kidron Valley that the spring is, but the city is up on the mountain because, again, you want the natural fortifications. So your water source is not on the top of the mountain, and this is always a weakness for Jerusalem. You have to secure your water source. If you're besieged, right, you have to have water. So they'll try different things. The Canaanites tried, and the the Israelites somewhat will improve upon it, but they'll extend their fortifications to cover the spring, but uh, it doesn't always work. And again, you have these, these vulnerabilities because the mountain is riddled with caves. So David decides, all right, I like this place. It's highly defensible. It doesn't belong to anybody. And the people in Salem, Jerusalem, insult David. And nothing motivates our boy like telling him, you can't do that. You can't kill me. (laughs) David says, oh yeah, I can. I promise you. promise you I can kill you. So verse 6, David led his troops to Jerusalem to fight against the Jebusites, so these Canaanites. You will never get in here, the Jebusites taunted David. Even the blind and lame could keep you out, for the Jebusites thought they were safe. 
<laughs> and you could just see David, oh yeah, I just, just keep talking, keep talking. But David captured the fortress of Zion, Zion, now called the city of David. When the insulting messages, and so, yeah, um, and one of the huge things, I should let Steve do this. Um, can we go back to the photo? Um, the earlier one? Yeah. One of the huge things that I forgot to mention is see Mount Moriah way up north outside the Canaanite city? That is the location where Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Huge. That's where the temple of God will be eventually built. So the, the Canaanite city didn't extend that far. It's, it's further up the mountain, if you will, but, but super, super important for us later on. Um, obviously, a lot of history there. But what David had done is he had captured Zion, Zion the lower half of the mountain, and so now he's going to press in um, up in the city. Verse 8, when the insulting message from the defenders of the city reached David, he told his own troops, go up through the water tunnels into the city and destroy those lame and blind Jebusites. How I hate them. That is the origin of the saying, the blind and the lame may not enter the house. So David made the fortress his home and called it the city of David. So you can do anything now. You're the king. What should I call my capital city? <laughs> I know. City of David. It's got a nice ring to it. I like it. He built additional fortifications around the city, starting at the Milo, which is uh, like a, a fortification, a foundation. It's, I think it's a stronghold that he talks about later. And working inward. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. So he's done a good thing, I think. He's removed these Canaanites. He's started on this path of Jerusalem becoming really, really important. Uh, although the fighting for Jerusalem has sort of never ended, right? Um, so just know, as, as Kurt said, it seems like something, something good is uh, happening in David's life as he, uh, as he takes over being king for the entire nation. I mean, and the writer of, of Solomon, or Samuel here makes this point that who is with him? The Lord is uh, with him. So in verse 11, you hear, you, you hear that and you're like, okay, this is fixing to just get better because the Lord is with him, right? But one of the things that happens as David begins to consolidate his power and that's, you know, you, you bring the nation together, you now have a capital, you're consolidating your strength and your power. What happens in our lives when we start experiencing success? I think we have a couple of options. We can continue to pursue the Lord and call on the name of the Lord regularly or you can start like the scripture says becoming wise in your own eyes like man i'm i am something now right i don't have to i don't have to run from anybody i've got a capital i've got a palace and then 
here we go. We start getting little clues that things are not well in David's heart. So verse 11, the first thing David's going to do is now make an alliance with King Hiram of Tyre. David sent messengers to him along with carpenters and stonemasons to build him a palace. Hiram also sent many cedar logs for lumber, and David realized that the Lord had made him king over Israel and made his kingdom great for the sake of his people Israel. So the first thing David decides is to build a temple to God, right? A holy place where God can be worshipped. Is that what David did? No. I need a cool place to live. I need a palace. I'm the king. I've been living in dumpy old Hebron for seven and a half years. Hebron's like... Odessa. No, I'm kidding, Tom. Um, it's bad. I'm moving on up. I, I got me a big house now. What, what are the funny things that archaeology teaches you is that the ancient Israelites were amazing and the work that they created, you know, with God's help, they created this lasting monument. And the reason it had to be this is because they can't build anything. Everything the Jews build falls down. They are not architects. They are not... Uh, it, seriously, you go to Israel today, and if there's anything standing from the ancient world, they didn't build it. Um, I told you about the water tunnels. One day when you go to Israel, they'll say, oh, would you like to go see Hezekiah's tunnel? And your answer is no. So this is Jewish, ancient Jewish engineering at its finest. They decide they need to dig through the limestone to find a water source or to get to the Gihon water source. So this was their engineering. Some guys started digging at the top of the mountain and some other guys started digging at the bottom. And they just dug and dug and dug and dug and they'd scream when they finished the tunnel and they'd listen, try to hear the other guy. So this is Hezekiah's tunnel. It's a freaking act of God that they ever found each other. But the tunnels do this. I mean, they're S's and curves, and they just wander all the way around. And finally, they connected each other, probably four times as long as it had needed to be, but they did it. So they'll say, do you want to walk down these tunnels? I tell you, it's the worst thing in Israel. It's a nightmare down there because they're, they're little people. They don't dig well. And so it's like the only thing they ever built. If they had anything, like the temples or the palaces, they had to import people to do it because they really can't. Uh, so they have gone to Hiram of Tyre. Now remember what I said about the Canaanites. David just took a city from them, and now he's going to make a deal with not just any Canaanite, but sort of the chief Canaanite, the rich one that lives along the coast. Tyre and Sidon are their big cities. Later in the Old Testament, they will give us Satan's hometown. And it's Tyre. The Lord of Tyre, the ball of Tyre, is Satan. So this is not good. Again, you, you don't call up the baby murderers to build your palace. Uh, this is going to be kind of hanging over Jerusalem for a long time. He'll actually uh, bring them back, and Solomon will, to build the, uh, the temple itself, which is kind of a problem. But 
Uh, cedar logs are the greatest probably natural resource that all of the Levant, the uh, ancient Palestine had. The Canaanites have a uh, seal on the market. Uh, they've been selling these cedar logs to Egypt for millennia. Uh, Egyptians do great things with them, but the area is tree poor. Absolutely. Uh, still today, if you ever visit, you'll realize a pine tree struggles to grow in Israel. They have uh, olive trees, which are little dumpy bushes things, but uh, any kind of uh, big tree that you would build a house out of, uh, it's just it's not there. Cedar is the only thing in its way up in the mountains. It's just one of those cultural things. When we read in the New Testament, Jesus' father was a carpenter. We think, oh, he built everything out of wood. No, he didn't build anything out of wood. It's too expensive. He's a stonemason. That's what carpenter means in Israel, because what you build out of is stone, because they got stones <laughs> never-ending. Um, that's why all the Palestinian kids have plenty of stuff to throw at the soldiers, because there's never-ending supply of rocks in Israel. But this is maybe a gray step that David is taking, but... Verse 13, David uh, pushes it again. So you get a uh, palace built for yourself. What do you got to fill it with? Cade, what do you think? What kind of people? Hotties. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. Because Kurt and I were prepared for this. You know, the scripture never explicitly forbids uh, multiple marriage. It doesn't. But it makes a strong case that it's a bad idea. Because every time it happens, something bad happens. Not good. We were intended to marry one person. One wife. Right? And... uh, See, both of these, both of these paragraphs, beginning in verse verse eleven and then verse thirteen, they seem very tame. But they are the farthest thing away from being tame. In some ways, they are to get us ready for like the the disaster that is Bathsheba. I mean, that's that's the thing that David is famous for his uh, his taking of Bathsheba as his wife and all the fallout that led from that. Uh, but this gets us ready. I mean, you got to start somewhere, right? After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there: uh, Shemuah. Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, uh, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japha, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliathlete. Something like that. Pretty close, right? Um, so right there in the middle, whose name we have? Solomon. Who is his mama? That would be Bathsheba. Just because I love names. You know what Solomon is in Hebrew? Shlomo. (laughs) I kid you not. (laughs) It's hard to think of great king Shlomo. (laughs) So anyway, I just get a giggle out of that. Some some names don't translate well. (laughs) 
kind of feel like, you know, there's like two guys in the, old, in the room with a candle writing scripture, and they're like, should we put in the multiple life? And like, no, nah, there's part to figure that out. We need all this other important stuff in here. Yeah. Yeah. So they like that. Right. Yeah. It's a mess. So it doesn't say that they kill all the people, all the Canaanites that were in Jerusalem. They don't. So do you think that's why he intermarried with all of them? That's a great question. Uh, I'll have to double check myself. I don't think he marries a Canaanite. I know he marries a lot of, of neighboring people, but I don't think he marries a Canaanite. But yeah, they, they should have gotten rid of him. They, they do hang in the city. What are the, the huge thing going right now in terms of archaeology is this city of David that we're talking about here is being excavated. And holy moly, is stuff coming out. Just great stuff. You know, we joke, when we were in seminary, they told us there is no David. Uh, David didn't exist. He's like Robin Hood. We found more evidence that David existed than you could possibly shake a stick at today. And the city of David is, is proof of that. We actually may have found the palace that he was, had built. There's... Uh, a building they found in the city of David near the Milo, and it has these columns, and they're they're like it, it, this has got to be some important building. It's it's not a temple. It, it, the The original Israeli archaeologist who found it said this is the the palace, and then she got attacked, and everybody said you can't prove it's a palace. So she's saying it's a monumental building. So whatever that is, but the top of it they have, and I'll bring you a photo of next week. They have this almost geometric pattern at the top of the column. And we know from later Jewish tradition on their coins that David had this symbol uh, that they associated. And we don't know why. It's not the start of David. It's not anything we recognize. But they said, this is David. Okay, so this is the first time we've actually found on the top of these pillars this symbol. So this very well could be the original city of, of David. But man, I sure wish that had been a house he had built to God as opposed to, you know, uh, some cool digs. I mean, it doesn't seem like an NFL player. You know, uh, he, he just got the big contract. And so he buys a big house and he fills it full of hot girls and, and everything is good. Um, and exactly, you know, um, it's this is going to go bad. You know it's going to go bad. So um, yeah. we probably don't have time. Uh, verse 17, the Philistines are still there. And who do the Philistines, David, who does the Philistines think David works for? Them. But that gig is kind of up, right? If David's conquering cities, he's uniting the land, he's proclaiming himself king. Philistines are like, oh, for seven years we thought we had all this taken care of. Well, we got to go up and beat up this guy. And so David suddenly is shaken out of his, his little pad here, and he's going to have to go fight the Philistines. We'll, we'll, I guess, pick up with that next week. It's amazing how easy it is mm -hmm. to finally defeat the Philistines. They have been this dark cloud for so long, and David can do it in half a chapter. Uh, David could have done it uh, just about any time. But I think the fundamental question God uses in our judgment is what David is going through right now. God looks at us, looks really into our soul, 
And he says, if all restrictions are removed from you, you don't have to worry about paying the bills. You don't have to worry about eating. You don't have to answer to a boss. You don't have to answer to whatever. What will you do? Really, what will you do? If I give you freedom and power and ability, what's going to come out of you? Are you going to go crazy like David in a little bit and just indulge yourself? To just go nuts? Or is something else in there? Steve actually taught me this, and it's good that you see David almost become priest-like at times, that there really is this heart in him to get closer to God and bring people closer to God. But you got frat boy David too, <laughs> uh, that just wants to have a good time. So who's going to win? Our judgment when we go to heaven? That's the question I think God looks at. If I let you loose, I give you all eternity. I give you an eternal body. I let you live in a sense with me. What are you going to do? You can't fake that. Now certainly Jesus is the model for that. Jesus atones for the mistakes we've made in the past. But that doesn't take away that question for our soul. What are you going to do? So think about that today. If God let this day be exactly what you wanted, you had no restrictions, what would you do? Would you be a bit like David? I prepared a list of people that will not see sunset. <laughs> Would you call that old girlfriend up? Would you, anyway, fill in the blank. Um, this is the time and the place that we have to work that stuff out and why God gives us the number of days, years that he does so that we can decide who is really me and let the best part of that win. Yeah, so just note... How we began our, begin our session this morning uh, with Psalm 86. What did David say was true about himself? Yeah, the word he uses, I am poor and needy. Now, oh man, especially in Midland, uh, man, we don't want to be considered the poor and the needy. It's like we want to be considered somebody who can build our palace. And make our home, build our family up, right? Have a good time. And the, 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 those kind of uh, successes of settling in, I believe that, that God is at work in that for, for David, uh, consolidating his power and, and all that. But it's like, man, your success can go to your head. And you can think, this is because of the work that I have done. And so it's like, okay, David doesn't seem to be in a good place. But then David, he is faced with his, oh, these are the people that I've been working for, and now it's time to fight them. What do I do? Oh, God, I am poor and needy. And then he turns again and begins to inquire of the Lord. And we'll see this next week. This battle with the Philistines, you think should last four or five chapters, right? Exactly. Boom, it's over. Why? And we'll we'll work through that next week. Right. Questions? Let's pray.
Father of God, again, we thank you for the lesson of David. I'm sure he grimaces each time we read these scriptures, realizing how foolish he was to say he was poor and needy when he wanted a capital, a palace, and more girls. Father, we know you know us. You've been with us all of our days. There have been times when we have been poor and needy, and then times we have been really poor and needy. So today, we pray we can walk with you, as David tried and often failed. We do inquire of you today. We do ask, O oh Lord, what do you want with our lives? Who do you want us to be? We know that you are the God that loves to rejoice with us. You actually don't begrudge us a palace. You don't begrudge us women in our lives, a woman in our life, to fill us, to love us, to bring joy to our lives. But in all things, you expect us to be men of Christ, men of integrity, men of righteousness, men of love. Help us to know that that is within us, that we really can be the anointed leaders of our families, our businesses, our city, our country, that we can defeat the enemy far faster than we ever knew we could because you were with us. Help us to wander in our imagination in those places that if we won the lottery today, what would we do? For in that place, we know that you show us who we are and who we can become. May we learn this here and now. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.